You're listening to the New City Church Podcast. These episodes are recorded live on Gadigal land. Sometimes the audio quality might not be perfect because what you're listening to is a conversation. We don't edit out the chatter and we think that's what makes it authentic. Wherever you're tuning in from, we hope you find this episode encouraging. Lovely to have a beautiful collective wisdom and artistic skill, as Joel was saying, really, this is the cream of the crop. Um, So how today's going to work, we'll have a little dramatised reading and then I'm going to unpack it. And then we're going to have another little dramatised reading and I'm going to unpack it. And the second bit is a lot shorter than the first in case you're like concerned about the time. Um, and as we always say, if you want to get up, move around, get a drink, use the toilets, feel free, whatever's comfortable for you. Um, I have a bit of a slide just to locate us geographically. I don't know if we can send that to people on Zoom as well, if that's an option. Um, but basically, can you see that? We've got a place called Aram, that red one in the top, which is also known as Syria. Um, They're like the bad guys. And we've got like a river kind of running down through the middle that goes through Israel. That's the Jordan River. That's going to be important. And we hit Israel there. The capital is Samaria, which is a little green star underneath the S of Israel. That's also going to be important. Thank you. We are going to transplant that map into this room so we can take the map down. We're going to have Aram over here. I don't know if you can see it. This is Aram here. This is the Jordan River that went down the middle of the map. That's kind of in the middle back here. We can follow the electrical cord as the Jordan River. Helpful for our actors when they come up. Um, Here we have Samaria, which is that capital of Israel, over this side. And Elisha is the key prophet Um, in this story. So we've got Elisha's place, which is somewhere near Israel there. Just for a little bit of context. Right. So um, this is an invitation into a bit of a dusty part of the Bible. Um, So I think it's going to be similarly unfamiliar for all of us, no matter how much you have or haven't read the Bible. And the reason I chose such a random passage is because it's about my most favorite biblical character, And um, it's also, it's interesting, like, the more subjectively you look into something, sometimes the more universally it lands. So that is the invitation for today. If you want um, a little bit of history as well, we're about 800 BC. So can I invite our lovely actors up? Woo! All right. So we need... Over here we need Naaman, yep, and Naaman's servants can be with Naaman. <laughs> Lovely. We're obviously, Elisha's in Elisha's house. Who have we got? King of Aram needs to be in Aram. King of Israel is in Israel. It's pretty good. Amazing. Dream team. Love this. All right. You can put Elisha's place on the piano if you need. Yeah, he's a prophet. He can do that. (laughs) They were invented in 800 BC. So um, if you would like to follow along, we're reading from 2 Kings 5. I'm going to read the NIV, um, but you're welcome to just listen and watch and enjoy. So as we read, I also have an invitation to like have a think about how threads of faith are contrasted with threads of this 
skin disease called leprosy, um, which back in this biblical time, that represented someone who was cursed by God. So you might want to just ponder how those are contrasted as we read through. So now Naaman, love that Beck, was a solid commander in the army of the king of Aram. Where is that king of Aram? Yes, thank you very much. (laughs) He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Oh, so sad. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served in Naaman's house. She served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go. (laughs) The king of Aram replied, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. (laughs) So Naaman left. Naaman and servants, please leave and head towards Israel. (laughs) Um, You stay there. Thank you. (laughs) Amen and servants hang about here yep thank you um taking with him 10 talents of silver 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 sets of clothing the letter that he took to the king of Israel said with this letter I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy as soon as the king of Israel read the letter he tore his robes and said Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpah, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel, Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would would you not have done it? If much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan River. as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. (laughs) Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, 
Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will accept not, not a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace. Elisha said. Thank you. That was part one. Thank our actors. Woo! That really brought the passage to life. I don't know if we need to unpack it anymore. Um, but I just wanted to ask if there were any burning thoughts um, as you thought about the threads of leprosy and faith, if something like really jumped out to you or anything else that you want to share. We have time for a couple of quick thoughts from our collective wisdom. I just thought it was really cool that he's, it's totes fine that he's going to be... It was off. <laughs> I, I can't follow too far with this one. That's okay. Any other burning thoughts? Thanks, Dave. Because I have a lot of thoughts. Oh, Chris has a thought. like an oh yeah so Chris said it's it's so interesting how it's the servants telling the masters what to do and it's this kind of like upside down way of working I love that you're picking these things up neither of things of which I thought of so thank you <laughs> this is the collective wisdom at work um so um I'm not sure if you caught how like shockingly scandalous the beginning of our passage today was because it's a little bit confusing with Aram and um but I thought like since you might have heard that there's a war in Ukraine um we could compare it to modern day things like we could say now Naaman was the commander of the Russian army and he was great in the sight of his master because through him the god of Ukraine had given him victory it's an uncomfortable start I'm just letting that kind of sit there. I'm seeing it. I'm feeling it. And so he's valiant, but he has leprosy, which is confusing because it sounds like he's got God's backing, but the leprosy means he's cursed by God. 
So there's a lot of questions kind of coming through our minds here. Um, And to top it all, he has taken this lovely Israelite slave girl, and I know that she's deliberately unnamed, but I have named her Talitha. (laughs) I wonder if you can guess who my most favorite biblical character is. Um, And like... It's, it's miraculous because as we read through, we see Naaman as the leader of the enemy who's cursed by God, kind of set up to hate him. But what Talitha sees when she looks at him, she sees him with compassion and with concern and she shares what she can with him to help. So like even though she's lost everything, she's been taken from her homeland, from her language, her culture, her friends, her family – dumped in a very unfamiliar place just to be a servant. But I, I kind of th- see it like that song that we sang, that she's in the fire, but she's not looking at the flames. She sees who's in the fire with her. She's kept her faith, her faith in the unseen order of things, and she's living into how they should be, how they could be. She's kept her hope that all are redeemable, And she's kept her love because she shares her concern, her faith and her hope with Naaman. So it is an interesting thread to compare this faith versus leprosy because though she's lost everything, it kind of pales into insignificance because she has her faith. Whereas Naaman, you could say he has everything, but that almost pales into insignificance because he has leprosy. So it's just interesting where you look at values and the surface and what's underneath. So, so Naaman, this is wild because I think it's miraculous that this little girl looked at this powerful man and cared for him. But I actually think it's even more miraculous that when a little foreign Israelite girl makes a suggestion to a big, powerful military man He listens. He takes her advice, just the same as, like, Chris saw there. It's wild. Like, that blew my mind. Um, And so Naaman goes to his master, and he gets a letter. And with the letter, the king of Aram sends the equivalent – you dropped a lot of cash here, Steph – of $750 million. So it's a bit of a slow slog, trekking all the way to Israel with all the cash – And when they get there, the king of Israel has a royal freak out, which is understandable because, again, in context, um, the king would probably remember that the success that God had given Naaman was to mortally wound the king before him. So ever since that time, he's probably been like dreading a proper invasion and thinking, this is it, like now Aram's going to come in and like obliterate us so we can forgive the freak out um but instead of worrying you know am I God he might think to send Naaman to the prophet of God whose job description is miracles (laughs) and like Elisha at this point so far he has he's parted the Jordan River He's healed a boy, brought him back to life. He's fed a hundred men with 20 loaves. I don't know if any of those sound familiar to people who may have read the Bible before. Um, He's proven his worth as a prophet. 
But thankfully, Elisha heard about the freak out and he says, don't worry, send Naaman my way. God's got this. Little aside, Elisha is a combination of two words in the original. It's Eli and Shua, which is God, my salvation. And the original readers would have picked up that this word Shua, salvation, had already come up in verse 1. So when, um, when the passage says that like God had given victory to Aram, that word victory is literally salvation. It's the same word Shua. So as we start reading, we think, oh, this is interesting. The God of Israel is giving like military salvation, military victory to Naaman. But we get to this part and it looks like the real salvation that God has prepared for Naaman through Elisha is possibly a different kind. Maybe there's even more to the story. So we've got Elisha um, being quite bold when Naaman comes to meet him. Naaman would think he's a very powerful man, that he should be honoured, that maybe Elisha should come to him with pomp and ceremony and perform um, a really impressive magical act to heal him. And to be honest, if I was a bit of a military buff, like whose boss had just dropped 750 million for my medical bills, I'd probably be thinking I'm the bee's knees too. Um, So that's um, Naaman's expectation of Elisha's treatment. But when he gets to Elisha's house, he doesn't even let him in the front door. And he sends the work experience guy to give him a message. And the message is some insulting instructions, like go take a bath in the dirty Jordan River. Like, it's no wonder that Naaman is insulted. He probably thinks, why did we come all this way? I could have had a nicer swim back in Syria slash Aram. So he storms off in a rage. Like, this is the final straw. This treatment, these instructions are just intolerable for Naaman's ego. But thankfully, Naaman had some excellent servants who came up to him and um, just suggested, look, if, if you'd been told to do something really difficult, like go skydiving wrapped up as a mummy or something, they had skydiving back then, you'd try it. You're that desperate. So what harm could there be in just trying this simple thing? So, thankfully, he listens. And Elisha is a really good doctor because he knew that the treatment Naaman needed was not one that he could buy or one that was due to his power and influence, wasn't a magic trick that he could be, like, superstitious about. What he needed was something that would address the deeper problem, what lay beneath the leprosy and what lay in his heart. So Naaman gives it a go, and this is a baptism. You can imagine what he's thinking as he's going to the Jordan River for his swim. Maybe the first time he goes in, he thinks, "Ah, this is so undignified for someone so great as me. Dip. How embarrassing It's so humiliating that I'm doing this in front of all of my servants. 
in a foreign land. Dip. But nothing has worked. I have tried everything. Could this foreign god possibly help me? Dip. I've sacrificed my pride to give this a go. I would give anything for this healing to be a real thing. Dip. Is my skin looking a bit better? Dip. And as he came out after that seventh dip, his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Let's pause and fast forward 800 years later to another Jordan dip when Jesus is baptised. Luke 4 recounts this as Jesus is baptised, he's sent to the desert to be tempted by the devil and then he starts his official ministry and his teaching in synagogues. Everyone's marvelling at him, they glorified him verse 14, and then by verse 28, they are enraged by him, chasing him out of the synagogue and ready to throw him off a cliff. Like, what did Jesus say to turn the crowd from idol worship to like death threats in a few verses? Does anyone have Luke 4 open? I think it would be fun to have someone else contribute. Luke 4, verse 27. I'll bring you the mic. Thanks, Chris. Just 427. 427. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Wild. So mentioning Naaman the Syrian's healing was enough for this radical shift in Jesus' listeners. And... To me, I think that would be the kind of rage of Ukrainians hearing about a Russian general receiving healing. And that was the only time in the Old Testament when a man was healed of leprosy. So the anger, it's understandable, but it's interesting to compare the anger of Naaman when he was first angry in our passage. He was able to move through that and receive healing. But the crowd listening to Jesus, they stayed stuck in their anger. And by the end of Luke, they've crucified Jesus. So superficially on the surface, it seems kind of scandalous. But there is a truth deeper still if you are willing to look. And that is that healing is available for all. Redemption is available for all, but it takes humility to receive it. So, you know, we all have anger as well, and that's a gift, you know. It shows us our boundaries. It gives us motivation to take action. It gives us a lot of drive in life. But we also all have the choice of what we do with that anger. Do we use it to learn about what matters to us, give us our boundaries, give us motivation, and move through it? and potentially find healing in that? Or do we stay stuck in it and find ourselves like unintentionally driven by it? 
When Naaman comes out of the Jordan River, he is a new man. He is full of gratitude, humility, joy, and he is desperate to offer a gift. He says, now I know that there is no God in all of the world except Israel. Please, Elisha, accept a gift from your servant. He wanted to show his gratitude. But Elisha wouldn't have it. He said, no, no, Naaman. You can't buy God. You can't pay God off. You cannot serve both God and money. Elisha refused to reduce grace to a transaction. So this is where it gets a bit weird. I don't know if you caught it in our little reading. When Naaman hears that, he's like, okay, so you won't accept a gift from me. Instead, could you give me a couple of tons of dirt to take with me? (laughs) It seems a bit odd in our context. I'd love to know your thoughts. Does anyone have any ideas like what that's about? Souvenir, almost. (laughs) That is an original souvenir. (laughs) In this time at 800 BC, the way that people expressed their religion, it was very much tied to the land. And so relationship to God was contingent on being in God's place. So as Naaman was going to go home, he had this new, like he wanted to worship God and be in relationship with God. But he was afraid that leaving would mean he couldn't. So he wanted to take some land with him so that he could worship God back in Aram. And that's why he wants a couple of tons of dirt. But next time you're on holiday, consider it's an interesting souvenir. You can make a good story out of it. Yeah. Oh, definitely declare it at customs. Thanks, Steph. We don't want anyone arrested for a souvenir. And it's, it's also the same reason why Naaman wanted, um, just to be very clear, that when he's bowing with his master, and that's so true, Dave, it's kind of interesting how he's able to partake, participate in other cultures' worship and that that doesn't preclude him from relationship with God. Like Elisha says to him, go in peace. That's okay. We get it. And off he goes. So just before we do our very brief part two, Please stand up, have a little stretch, sit down in 30 seconds, and can we have our actors for part two to come up? Excellent. We all stretched out. Right, for our brief part two. So after Naaman, he's been healed, he's heading off towards Aram. We've kind of made it to here. Um, After Naaman had travelled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman. This Aramean, 
by not accepting from him what he brought, as surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? He asked. Everything is all right. Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents. Said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to his two servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants, put them away in the house, sent them away and they left. Then he went in and stood before his master, Elisha. And Elisha asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere. Gehazi answered, but Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Thank you, actors. <laughs> Gehazi means valley of sight which I find ironic and I think that's intentional. How much can you actually see you from a valley? It's quite sobering that Gehazi thinks that Elisha's got it wrong and that he's got it right and that he's acting in God's name. And it's so interesting, the writer of this passage um, has chosen the same wording when Elisha says, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. Here, Gehazi says, as surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. I don't know if you've heard this Mark Twain quote, um, and it goes, it ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Gehazi is convincing himself that he knows best and it's getting him into trouble. When Gehazi runs up to Naaman, Naaman got down very enthusiastic, still full of his joy and um, gratitude from this healing and he says, you know, is anything wrong? And Gehazi comes up with this really crafty tale and he, he, he like frames it like it's a ministry support. Can you donate some tuition for two new students who've turned up? And in one ninja move, he disguises his own love of money as service for God. 
And this is really the crux of what I would call what evil is. It's where we're able to lie to ourselves to the point where we choose darkness. It's this self-deceit of willfully being in darkness and calling it light. It looks like he squirrels this away for himself. I'm not sure what happens, but you can imagine in his heart there's this like smug sort of greed that he's won. And the amount, if it's interesting, is about $2,000, two talents of silver. And then he goes back to Elisha. And this question that Elisha asks, I loved the expression, Chris, like, where have you been, Gehazi? When I heard that question, it sounded quite familiar from a couple of other questions in the Bible. So in Genesis, when God had suggested to Adam and Eve, maybe don't eat the fruit, but they did, he came to them and said, where are you? And in Job, when he asks Satan, where have you been? I think all these three instances, the question is a way of addressing what's really going on and trying to like open up a bit of self-honesty and self-awareness with what's really happening um, and like the intentions behind the motivations, like an inquiry into what's happening in the heart, a, a gentle way to try and explore that. But instead of moving into the light and owning up to what he did, Gehazi has the audacity of responding like your servant didn't go anywhere so Elisha says Gehazi was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you is this the time to take money Naaman's leprosy will cling to you then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous it had become white as snow like it's another contrast of faith and leprosy Naaman left Elisha's presence, healed in peace with joy and with faith in God. But Gehazi left with Naaman's leprosy. It's this physical manifestation of what's happening in his heart, kind of evidence that he is serving money and not God, that he's cut himself off from the light and from life. He's left relationship with Elisha. He's left relationship with God. And when, when leprosy is kind of understood as being cursed by God, I don't think that's cursed like you're in trouble with the headmaster. I think it's like a red flag, last resort, wake up call. Like you're actually in darkness. Like take the opportunity to like choose differently. It's a severe mercy, but... I think the only thing worse than having cancer would be not knowing in time to receive treatment for it. So it's the same kind of mercy that barred Adam and Eve from Eden or that allowed Aram to be conquered and in one to 200 years that allowed both kingdoms of Israel to be taken over by foreign nations. It's an invitation back to the light I just want to add that you can't reverse the logic. Like, because Ukraine is being invaded does not mean that they're in darkness. Or because you're suffering or have leprosy or any skin condition does not mean that you're in darkness. Look at Jesus' life. You know, he lived a life of a lot of suffering and he was definitely in the light. 
So you can't reverse that logic. But I just feel like this is an invitation. Like if you're a praying kind and you're asking for healing for something, it's an opportunity to ask beyond just like help that person's back pain to be fixed. Like help that person's flu, help them recover. It's, a, it's an invitation to look for something beneath just the physical and, and find something richer to learn as well, perhaps. Because real and lasting transformation is born of great love and great suffering. In mystery, God chooses the weak or the insignificant or the inferior things like Talitha, the little Israelite servant girl, and he chooses the despised things like Naaman to humble powerful people and and people who are in darkness. So it's not all just people with self-deceit standing before God thinking that they're in the light. And I know that a lot of us here are involved in like big work towards justice and um, we'd love it if you join us for the Trans Day of Remembrance vigil later on. Um, There's a lot of big work to be done in the world and it's amazing how much all of you are a part of things like that. But in the big things and in the busyness of life, like let's not forget the opportunities of like the small or the foolish or the seemingly ordinary things because they're the opportunity for God to meet your love and faith and hope with divine grace and healing and transformation. Let's not overlook those opportunities. And I know I'm speaking to the choir when I say, if you're in a position of power or privilege, don't overlook the small voices. They may have a lot of wisdom and direction. And the more subjective the story, sometimes the more universal it can land. So I just invite you to think about the touchstones of where the stories of Naaman, of Talitha, Elisha, Gehazi, where they line up, where they resonate and and what that's left you with in your life. And I'd love us to sing that bridge of let there be light again as a prayer, as an invitation to be moving from darkness and arrogance and ego into the light and the openness of gratitude and joy. Thank you.